Welcome to the Grateful Historians Podcast, powered by McGinnis Dirt Services. I'm Lavelle, along with Chance, and we are educators with a passion for rural, local, and regional Southern history, told in the great tradition of Southern oral storytelling. Uh, as always, I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Chance Carden. And Chance, last time uh, you and I did a podcast, we Went all the way around the world, I think, to tell about a couple of communities, but wound up talking about the Punic Wars and back in the time of uh, some ancient mythology and all that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, important, I think, to to mention that the people of our past had a unique and interesting background, and some of the reasons why they named their communities what they named them maybe, maybe would be lost today, um, you know, if we're not trying to keep those stories told and, and share those stories with a future generation. So I think, I think it really is important. Um, what's on the topic of the agenda for today? Well, we're going to pick back up where we sort of left off on that last podcast and continue exploring some of the backstories and origin stories behind some of our local communities and townships. Uh, but before we get started on that, I want to kind of call you out here because as a person who loves to tell stories, uh, you forgot to mention several, uh, and that's partly my fault for not reminding you to, to bring it up, but uh, there's a story about Tiki Ben and another story about Dido that we mentioned, two, two communities that we talked about in that uh, last podcast, but there's two stories um, around those two communities that I really think our listeners would enjoy. So to start off, I want us to uh, go back to Tiki Ben and let you tell us the story uh, revolving around that community. Well, I would say that my failing to tell a story is not because I certainly it's not because I don't enjoy telling a story. I think it's because of my advanced age and the fact that I don't remember as well as I used to. That's what I'm going to blame it on anyway. A story from Tiki Ben, which I think is just a fascinating story. Uh, we got to go back to the year 1897. Really, to be honest, before this little community is named anything, I think, it's it's probably not called Tiki Bend at that time. And where we are is actually south of modern-day Highway 82 and closer to the railroad uh, that, that came through in the 1880s. But one day in 1897... A man by the name of Andrew Lewis was in that area, which was a grown-up area at that time, and he was looking for his oxen that had gotten out. So he's walking around, and part of the time he's on horseback, part of the time he ties his horse off, and he's walking around, but he's in that community over there looking for his oxen. And all of a sudden, he comes across a large bandbox. Be like those kind of boxes like you would see used to haul freight. And this is, again, close to the railroad. And he found a baby in that box that was about 10 days old. The child was wrapped up in a cloth and had been placed in that box near a thicket of woods close to the railroad trestle across the Big Black River. And to sort of orient this, we're talking uh, a little more than a mile south of Sapa is where this would have taken place. So he's just out there hunting for his animals, and he happens on this band box, and in it is a 10-day-old, around 10-day-old baby, and nobody around. He takes the baby into the community, 
And obviously this causes a stir in the community and starts tugging at people's heartstrings. A man by the name of John Martin and his wife, who lived in that community, adopted the baby and raised it. Gave it the name Martin. And just how it came to be there and by whose hands it came to be there is a total mystery. Nobody knows why the baby was placed there. Two thoughts on that. One possibility, and I hate to even think it, is that somebody put it there um, in the box to do away with it, which I absolutely hate to even, even go down that road. But it doesn't seem that they would have put a blanket in there and made, you know, those went to those extremes if that was the possibility. The most likelihood, um, the most likely scenario in this case is think about the mother that's traveling by rail. And maybe it's a mother who had this child out of wedlock. And, I mean, let's face it, in that era, a person who had a child outside of wedlock, I mean, this would, this would have been something that would have been considered uh, scandalous. Uh, it was frequently something that happened back in that day is um, girls who became pregnant would, would go to visit an aunt somewhere, you know, and they would leave the community and be gone for quite some time, then come back, and the baby would be adopted out in some other family. Uh, now, did that really? Did people not really understand what was happening? Well, yeah, I mean, I think people knew anyway. But um, at any rate, the baby was found by a local couple, and they kept it and raised it. And I think it's just a tremendous story, you know, that, that this baby was found out in the middle of the woods. You know, you would think that I, I'm just thinking out loud here, but you would think that they would have been scared to leave it in that much of an isolated location. If a man doesn't happen by when he does, a child could have died of uh, dehydration or, you know, anything else that happened there. But next to the railroad, and this happens, again, in the community of Tiki Bend. That is very fascinating and uh, kind of playing off of that, moving on into the next story uh, from the last podcast, another story about the community of Dido. This one is also just incredibly fascinating and interesting uh tell us a little bit more about that and chance i don't know how in the world i forgot the first one and i sure don't know how i forgot to tell the second one we were talking about dido as a community in choctaw county and being a viable community as early as the 1830s uh, one of the few places in choctaw county that you could get mail delivered at that time so um, you know it's it's a, an important place what we start seeing nationally in the early, let's say late 1840s, early 1850s, is a very strange phenomenon. There are uh, three sisters who live in New York State who begin claiming that they can talk to dead people, that they can communicate with spirits. And the way they have this done is they would invite a group of people over to their house and they would sit around the table, join hands, like today we would call a seance. They did not use that term at that time. The term that they used at that time was spirit rapping. Because here was what was supposed to happen. One of the girls acted as the quote-unquote medium who communicated with the spirits. The others asked questions of some person who was in the family who had departed. And the medium would ask the question, listen for the answer that they received sort of telepathically, let's call it, and then 
they would hear a series of knocks or raps that came from like maybe the ceiling above or the floor below them or the table would rock a couple of times or there would be a sound made by like a tapping sound on the table, but supposedly they weren't the ones doing this. And the spirit then would be communicating with them through this series of knocks or raps, and it was called spirit rapping. A a series of questions come to my mind immediately. I think I told you this before we started the podcast last time. You know, if a spirit could communicate with you to the extent that it could answer questions, why didn't it just answer in a voice rather than a tapping sound? Because then you had to go through somebody else. But supposedly that was the point, was that the medium had to be present. Not just anybody could do this. So you know what started happening. People from around the community started showing up, and they started asking questions. Because remember, in the mid-1800s, there were lots of people who lost children, who lost relatives at an early age, and there was this need, or, you know, it, it tapped into a sense of these people, of the loss of these people. One of the things that makes it so sad, you know, is that people legitimately thought they were talking to a dead relative. Um, in the meantime, somebody's playing these people, is, is the sad nature of all of this. But anyway, it takes a couple of years for this phenomenon to reach across and get into other communities. Well, where does it wind up? Choctaw County, Mississippi, in the early 1850s, Dido, Mississippi, was a popular place for spirit rapping, which seems so counter to the traditional religious sensitivities, you know, of, of a church-filled community, sort of a Bible Belt community. That seems odd to me. But apparently it became quite a craze in Choctaw County, and particularly in Dido, that there were a couple of families and people would come to their home. Now, here's what we find out later about this phenomenon. One of the sisters in New York eventually makes the claim that what they had were a series of small strings that were tied to objects that were on different floors of the house and that one of them could take off her shoe and take her toe and manipulate the string. Now, some of this, you think about it, it's... It's the atmosphere, okay? You do this in a dark room. You put candles on the table. Everybody's holding hands. It's in the dark of night. Naturally, people are going to be a little bit more receptive to something of a supernatural type thing in that environment. It's like scaring a child out on a dark night, you know, versus doing it in the middle of the day. So this phenomenon happens And the fact that this was happening in Dido, Mississippi, in Choctaw County in the 1850s, is just extremely interesting to me. And apparently from the records, it went on for several years. Uh, People who thought that they could come here and communicate with maybe a child who had passed away or their grandmother or something and and have them talk to them. Uh, Just an extremely interesting uh, thing that took place. That is very interesting. Um, And... I think just like you mentioned earlier, it is sad on one hand that you had most of these families legitimately believing that they were contacting a loved one that had gone on. Uh, And then on the other hand, it might be sort of one of those deals like uh, the modern day Ouija boards where people are treating it like a novelty or party favor sort of thing. Um, it, It could have gone either direction in some cases, but it is fascinating that that uh, reach communities like this in this area uh, in the Bible Belt. That's very fascinating. Now, our next community uh, 
has been requested by Kent Brooks and Michelle Woods. Um, this is the community of Sherwood, and I know a lot of people in the area are familiar with it. So tell us a little bit about Sherwood and where its name came from, the origin stories uh, behind that community. Okay, so uh, the community of Sherwood in Choctaw County, northern Choctaw County, just south of Matheston. Um, just as a side note, I did not grow up in Sherwood, but I grew up just outside that region, so I'm, I'm very familiar with it, and it's a place that's a, a very dear spot in my heart. Uh, I do want to say this before I continue, because I, I know some people are probably wondering, where are you getting all of your information from? Uh, I'm getting it primarily from about four sources. Um, obviously, old newspaper records, uh, which I did my Matheston book on some years ago. I'm getting a lot of information from it. Uh, also, the Webster County History Book that was completed in the early 1980s. Excellent source of information. I would advise anyone who doesn't have that book, if you're interested in it, try to find a copy of that because there's a lot of Webster County news and information in there, particularly on Webster County families. If you're into genealogy and that type thing, it is an excellent source. Also, um, J.P. Coleman's book, Choctaw County Chronicles, about Choctaw County. If you haven't seen it, I would also encourage it's hard to find. That's a very difficult book to get a hold of these days. I was fortunate enough about two years ago to find it on the Internet for just a couple of dollars somewhere out in, I believe, Oregon or somewhere. And I immediately hit click on it and sent off for it because it's a difficult book to get a hold of. Uh, but it is full of Choctaw County information, even Webster County information about the, the pre-split of Choctaw County. And also, I would mention one other thing. If you do not have, if you are a fan of the history of the state of Mississippi, you absolutely must find a copy of the Mississippi Encyclopedia, which came out a couple of years ago. 1,400 pages of Mississippi history. It is absolutely filled with detailed accounts. That story about the cattle dipping and that sort of thing, I got all of that from that, from that book, more or less. So it's an interesting, interesting source and, and something that's really worth taking a look at. I highly uh, recommend it if you haven't ever seen it before. The community of Sherwood, Choctaw County. If you look at early records of the railroad, and that railroad that came through, that came through in a north-south direction, through Choctaw and Webster counties, was originally called the Mobile, Jackson, and Kansas City Railroad. It was being built by 1903. It was completed in 1905. And when you look at early railroad maps, the community that we call Sherwood is listed on the maps as Livingston. And there were a group of families by the name of Livingston who lived there. Now, uh, Kent Brooks, who asked this question, his mother did a very nice write-up about the history of Choctaw County, some things, and particularly of Sherwood, and he shared that with me several years ago, and he mentioned the fact that, uh, or, or her write-up mentioned the fact, rather, that Sherwood comes from the name Sherwood Forest because there was a large timber section there, and it reminded people that they drew that name from that. I don't know. Um, I'm not saying that that's, that that's untrue. I, I believe that story. I believe that that's probably possibility 
I do know this. One of the most prominent railroad executives of that time, the vice president of this railroad, by the way, had the last name of Sherwood. And one of the also powerful people who were with that railroad had the name of Dancy. And the community of Dancy in Webster County was certainly named after Mr. Dancy, who worked with the railroad. And I suspect that part of the name came about as a result of this person. Don't totally know that, but I think that. So could it be possible that both are true? I think so. Because certainly this was an area, this area we call Sherwood today, was an area where there was um, a lot of timber. Um, Again, at Sherwood was a depot, but not the type of depot like you would have found at Matheston or some of the larger towns. It was what we called a waiting depot. Now, what was a waiting depot? It was the type of depot for passengers only. But when the passenger train came through, the train was not intending to stop at that spot unless a passenger wanted to get on. And what you did was you took a handkerchief or a bandana or something like that and you waved to the train and it would stop and pick you up. But only if someone made the motion as if they wanted to get on. Otherwise, it would often go through. Now, freight trains were a different story because there were a couple of switch tracks at Sherwood. Uh, Local people would hew out uh, cross ties, and they paid them for these cross ties. A lot of how these country guys who who were farmers, it's a lot of way they made their money in the time when the cotton crop wasn't coming in, was they would hew cross ties. Difficult job, and it didn't pay much, but that was a way to kind of get through bad times was to hew out cross ties take them to the switch track and load them up and take them other places. Um, So this town or little community, once known as Livingston, then later Sherwood, there was a man there by the name of Ostrander who owned and operated a large planer mill and a sawmill. And apparently there were several dozen workers who worked for this gentleman. And Chancey did an interesting thing. We've heard about housing being provided for workers before, temporary-type houses. But they made something very unique, almost like a an early mobile home. They would take these small houses for these meant to be used by these workers, and they built them on skids so that mules or oxen could drag these skids and they could move these houses closer to their work. So... There wasn't any excuse for not showing up for work on time because if you worked in this section crew cutting out this timber, your house would be moved out into the woods next to where you worked. Uh, Pretty interesting that that happened. Also of note in the town of Sherwood was a man by the name, somebody we talked about in the very first podcast that you and I did. I told you one time this stuff has a way of coming full circle. man by the name of N.S. Ellis, this young boy who walked to Bennett Academy. He opens up a store. He and his wife, Ruth Hester Ellis, opened up a mercantile store in Sherwood. And it was said that you could purchase some of the finest dress goods. They would make trips annually to Memphis and pick up some of the finer goods and bring them back. And at a little bit place in Sherwood, it was possible to buy better dress goods than it was in the town of Matheston. So just about a mile south of Matheston. Um, I do have a story. And it's a rather horrific story, 
but uh, a story that happened in Sherwood that I would like to uh, communicate with the audience. So in the year 1915, January 12th, 1915, is reported in the Jackson Daily News the following story. And this is very horrific. Think about this as a title. Dog Carries Man's Head. And I'm just going to read this. A gruesome spectacle was revealed a day or two ago in Sherwood in Choctaw County, Mississippi. A puppy belonging to a neighbor in hunting discovered the body of a Negro lying behind a burnt log. The puppy carried the head off, and a neighbor, seeing it in the mouth of the dog, informed people in the community who at once investigated the matter. They went to the spot and found the decomposed body of the man. On his person were found two letters. One was addressed to a party in Lawrence County, and the other to an individual in Sturgis, Mississippi. A coroner's jury was impaneled, and after an investigation, the jury rendered a verdict that the deceased came to his death by unknown parties and that it was a foul murder. Now, Chance, I wasn't on that jury. I believe I could have told you that without going to a jury and having it impaneled. Now, here's the sad part about this. That's probably all that was done. And again, that's happening in 1915. So, there is no other mention of anything about this later. Crazy story um, from our past. And I hate to leave the town of Sherwood, the community of Sherwood, on that note. But I could not leave that story out. That is such an interesting and unusual story. And nothing apparently was done about it. All right. So with those interesting stories and that uh, fascinating background on Sherwood, we're going to move on to our next community requested by Taylor Norwood, uh, the town or the community rather of Dancy. Uh, So give us a little bit of information on Dancy and the origins uh, behind that community. I will be happy to do so. But at this time, I would like to stop for just a second and mention Austin McGinnis of McGinnis Dirt Services. If you need the pond built or levee repaired, land clearing, a house pad, road pushed, bush hogging done, any of that type of general land improvements, contact Austin McGinnis at 662-552-7750. Again, that's Austin McGinnis at 662-552-7750. 7750. I'd also like to mention another couple of people who listen to our podcast. I would like to mention Miss Cynthia Berry and Sarah Spencer Berry. Sarah uh, Chance wants to know when I'm going to get the next podcast done frequently when I mention it. So uh, I hope she's listening. And usually she's done, usually she's done one of the two part we did about uh, Janie Sharp. She had part one done before I had part two loaded. So she's always listening, and we appreciate them. I'm, I'm picking at her about that. I'm, I'm just grateful that these people are wanting to listen to what we're doing because that's why we're doing this. Now, the topic was Dancy, correct? Okay. So Dancy is going to date back. Taylor Norwood asked for this, and hello to Taylor. Dancy is going to date back to the year 1904, but it has a much older history than that. If you travel into the community of Dancy, you are going to see uh, a creek known as Lion Creek. I mentioned it earlier in a previous podcast. Lion Creek, again, was the dividing line between the Choctaw and Chickasaw Indians. 
And Chance, if you've ever watched Westerns and know a little bit about Western Indians and their some of their beliefs, there was this thing called counting coup in which you would ride up and touch an enemy. Young boy became kind of a man when he was willing to do that. Showed his bravery. That's not so much what happened with the Indians and the Choctaws and Chickasaws, but you did exhibit great bravery if you were willing to cross those boundary lines. So they would go into these places and the Chickasaws. Uh, I know a ton of arrowheads and that type of thing have been found in that area. It's just a extremely popular place for that. And again, a line that separated those two nations is going to be that kind of place. So Dancy has a much older history than just that location. Its historic value is tremendous. But let's talk about how Dancy comes into being. It is the home of a place called Wake Forest Church. And if anybody's ever been out to Wake Forest, there are tombstones that date all the way back to the 1840s. Um, there was a school there at one time called Wake Forest School. But then several years later, um, after a period of time goes by, there is a community by the name of Sheba that pops up. Not exactly where Dancy is today, but it would be north of Dancy just a little bit and then east of Highway 15. Um, post office is established in 1894 at this place called Sheba. Well, why would Sheba move from where it was located and then become known as Dancy. Why would it move? Well, again, 1904, like we mentioned earlier, the railroad comes through in 1904. So they're going to put a depot in a different spot. And that depot is going to become Dancy. Now, again, why the name of Dancy? It is said that a railroad executive by the last name of Dancy worked to make this into a thriving town, and he tried to make this place uh, become bigger in size and work to help it in, uh, increase in size. And they honored him by naming it in his honor. So Dancy was the name of this place. That name changed in 1904. Now, what was this place like, Dancy? We have a 1910 census that tells us a little bit about it because it was incorporated as the village of Dancy. Believe it or not, in 1910, picture Dancy today because I pictured in my mind is you know, just a tiny community. In 1910, Dancy had 143 citizens living inside the village of Dancy, which is a pretty good number. Had three general stores, a drugstore, a sawmill, a cotton gin, a grist mill, a grammar school, and two churches. It also had a business district that had wooden sidewalks that connected the stores. This is a thriving community. And I've actually seen the railroad maps from 1905. Dancy was laid out, the streets were laid out, as if this had the potential to be a large town at some time. Now, it never, never does make that, never does become a huge town, but that's pretty interesting. They tore down the old Wake Forest School, and built the Dancy School, which had three rooms and an auditorium. Now, eventually that school is going to go away, and those students are going to be sent to Mantee and Cumberland. 
And the Dancy Post Office is going to be discontinued on January 3rd, 1951. Another community chance that owes its existence to the railroad and a name to a railroad executive. So much of Webster County, the impact of Webster County, we might go into this in a later podcast sometime, about how the railroad changes Webster and Choctaw counties and moves these communities from one place to the other. And just the impact that the railroad had, just a tremendous impact. Um, That's the community of Dancy. That is really interesting. And I I do think another podcast on railroads and even of major highways as we transition from railroads to highways and the impact that the infrastructure and transportation um, of the state and on a national level, what that has on all these communities. I mean, like you said, uh, they come and they, they, they can um, attribute their existence to those railroads and later on uh, their deaths to uh, major highways that kind of bypass uh, a lot of these smaller communities as the railroads uh, kind of fall out of uh, necessity. And um, that, it's just all very interesting, though, and I do think we need to touch on that later on. Uh, our final community, though, today uh, on this podcast will be uh, SAPA, and I actually really enjoy the story of its um, origin story and where uh, that community gets its name from. Uh, but this has been a request from Ann Jarrett, uh, so let you kind of explain the origin behind that uh, community and maybe a story or two with it. Well, I have a story. <laughs> it's not a SAPA story, but when you were mentioning railroads, it made me think of it. And I got to tell this, okay? It doesn't have anything to do with SAPA, but it does have to do with Choctaw County, okay? So we're not in Webster County. We're going to back up. The very first railroad that came to Choctaw County came in the 1870s. Now, this story came from my grandmother, who got this story, I believe, from her mother. But I, she told this story, and, and I believe it to be true. Got to understand how isolated Choctaw County was in that era. 1870s. We don't have a telegraph. Didn't have a railroad. Newspapers came by horse and buggy. So you got your news in bits and spurts. And maybe there may be a line drawing of something, but there were a whole lot of people. If you had gone up to them and said, what is a railroad or what's a train? They couldn't have told you what a train was except by description from other people. They never seen one before. The railroad is set to come through the first day. And people have gathered in Ackerman, Mississippi to see this railroad come. And you know how loud a steam whistle is on a train. I mean, it's pretty loud. So all these people are gathered, and that train comes roaring into that depot, and they turn loose on that whistle go off. And my grandmother said that there were people in Ackerman who took off running in fright and went and hid. They had never heard a train before, certainly never seen one before, and it scared them that bad. Can you imagine that? That that people, that they were so, and I, I'm using this word ignorant, not as a, I'm not degrading them or downgrading them when I say this. They just were unaware. They didn't know, they'd never seen one before, and it frightened them so bad that they ran. Um, that, that's crazy to me. 
Now, I'll say this, and we're talking about technology, and, and I'm, I'm going to say this, and people will laugh when they hear it. We, we say that about those people a long time ago, but let me tell you about something that frightened somebody around, right around here. I will not say the name, but I will tell you what happened. When we first started getting Internet locally, there was a local lady who told me that she heard on the news, she said, be careful going out to your mailbox. I said, Why? She said, I heard on TV that there was a virus that could get in your mailbox and could make you ill. What she had heard back in the days of old dial-up and AOL back in those early days was to be careful about opening emails in your mailbox that, had, that might contain a virus. But she thought it was a literal virus that was in your mailbox. So, you know, if I told that story 100 years from now, they would laugh the same way that people would laugh about that train. back in. It's just all a different matter, a different time. Now, that wasn't our topic. Our topic was SAPA, which has an unusual name. Now, how did the community of SAPA get its name? It's during the time when all of these depots are being formed, and each one of these communities are vying for a depot. If you could get a depot back in that era, it was a tremendous boon for your local town. Not everybody got one. The railroad was not going to put a depot where SAPA is now. But the people in the community went together and decided, we need one. We're going to get one by whatever means we have to. So they got together and they decided to pool their money together and build a depot, but hoping that the railroad would accept it. So they got the railroad executives to come in to the community of what's now called SAPA and listen to their pitch about whether or not you know there should be a depot here. So eventually the railroad people agreed, okay. You're, building, you're providing all the materials. You're going to provide the land, everything else. We'll, we'll allow this depot to be here. But now you've got a problem. Every one of these depots up and down this line has been named after somebody who either A, owned the land, or some railroad executive. Something along those lines. How do you name something when you've pulled together about 25 people? Everybody would like for it to be named after them. So the railroad executive and one of the men are walking around and the guy has a little big kid with him, and this boy is inquisitive, and he keeps saying to his daddy, who they called it those back in that era, Papa. Say, Papa, what are they going to name this thing? And while the men are discussing it, he repeats it several times. Say, Papa, what are they going to name this depot? And the depot agent, or the, excuse me, the railroad executive looks down and sees the boy, and he tells the man, Say, Papa is going to be the name of this depot. And the man says, no, I don't think that's going to work. So eventually they shortened it from Say Papa to Say Pa. And we call it Sapa. But that's where that depot came from and why it's named that. Um, I found that story in the archives in Jackson. And, you know, you talk about a story that didn't need to be lost to history. Uh, that is one that, that wouldn't need to be lost. Now, why did this place not become bigger? It had a post office and a lot of other type things going for it. Uh, by the way, it also had tons of timber. It took, it said, 35 to 40 years to work up the timber in the SAPA community. That's how 
thickly forested it was back in that time period. So it had a lot going for it. Why didn't it become bigger? Because all of a sudden in the early 1900s on one day, the Postal Service decided to shut down the post office. And the man who ran the post office, it was said, received a notice from the post office to take his keys and what he had related to it, take it to Eupora and turn it in. And he inquired as to why. Nobody could give him a good answer. The He thought that maybe the people in Eupora had something to do with it, and they denied it and said, no, we don't know either. It was a viable post office. It was doing well. It seemed to be flourishing. He even had the data as to how it was receiving more packages and getting out more letters than some of the others in the county. But for whatever reason, it was stopped. And when you lose your post office, it's kind of difficult back in that era to be a viable community. So it began began somewhat declining. Chance, we've talked about a lot of these communities, and most of them that we've talked about, I guess all of them that we've talked about so far, are no longer incorporated. Some of them are places that you couldn't even, unless you really knew the area, you couldn't even really die to. I mean, nobody would know where that was. Um, But they were all viable, integral parts of Webster and Choctaw County from our past. And I just think that the history of how these places got started, we have gone from cattle ticks to night riders to the Punic Wars to ancient mythology to funny names started by little boys, just talking about a radius of about 40 miles from where you and I are seated right now. And to me, that's extremely interesting. All right, well, before we sign off for uh, this podcast, I want um, to maybe see if I can get you to give a little bit of insight into what we may be discussing next and uh, to give our listeners something to look forward to for our next podcast. Chance, I think that maybe um, we haven't done a book review yet. We've talked about a lot of things, but we haven't done a book review yet, and you and I both have a book that – uh, we read that we were just fascinated by the topic. Uh, the book is entitled The Captured, and it is about um, children who were captured by Plains Indians out in Texas and who never were capable of really integrating themselves back into white society afterwards. And a little bit about how they lived and how that impacted their lives and how that impacted the lives of the families that had to go through that. It's just a really, really interesting topic. Probably won't be a full podcast. It'll probably be something that uh, uh, you're the English teacher, okay? So I'm just, I'm just an old storyteller is all I am. But uh, I, I want to hear what you have to say about the book because um, Chance is too modest to tell this, but he likes to review a lot of books, and he does a really good job of doing it. I want to hear about what he has to say concerning this book and whether or not he thinks it's something the public might be interested in reading. Uh, but we're going to, we're going to go into that book review a little bit. We'll also pick up on some local stories cause I don't think that would be an entire, uh, length that maybe about half of the, of what we do that time. Um, more rural storytelling. That's all I got to tell you. We'll, we'll think of something to come up with along the way, uh, to add to that. And, uh, that's, that's what we're going to be kind of our theme is next time we, we get together. Well, I'm really excited about that. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, before we, say or you know 
or sign off for today. I, I do want to mention that I'm incredibly grateful for this new year and new beginnings that we have. I forgot to mention it on that last one. Uh, but 2021, we can all hope and pray that it's a little bit uh, brighter and more positive than 2020. So I'm excited and grateful for uh, this new year and to see what we have coming up. Uh, that, that's a really good thought and you know something along the lines I've been thinking about too. But I want to say this as well. You know, you and I are sitting here, we're talking about being grateful. You and I are sitting here talking about the beginnings of Sherwood and Dancy and Dido and Tom Nolan and all these places that we've talked about. Where would we be if nobody had not kept any records? Somebody down the line has to be the record keeper. Um, I've been working on a little project with First Baptist Church in Matheston, you know, trying to get some pictures together. You know, somebody had to take the picture. And I can tell you about it as best I can, but somebody had to somebody had to have the foresight to say, I'm going to take a picture of this to show later generations what this looked like. Or I'm going to record what it was like in Sherwood in the 1920s, how many stores there were. Most people don't stop to do that. Um, so I am grateful for all of the record keepers out there, those people that record pieces of information and hang on to it for us because they really become – important to the social fabric of what I talked about in the podcast we did previously where you know it's extremely important that we know where we come from and why we do these things so I'm grateful for those people Uh, we are the grateful historians we will talk about these things again in about two weeks thank you for joining us